morning, everyone. <clears throat> so good to be with all of you this morning as we enter back into and continue on in the incredible unfolding story that God has revealed to us so that we would know Him, we would know how to deal with one another and with Him. So uh, it is incredible to journey through this kind of level of absolute wondrous revelation from our Creator and Sustainer. Uh, we are currently in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth uh, in response to some things that he had received from them. And this letter really ends up being uh, very corrective in many ways, correcting a lot of the things they're dealing with because the church in Corinth is dealing with that huge tension between laying ourselves down for the sake of Christ and for the sake of one another and using what God gives us to elevate ourselves, right? I mean, we all live in that tension. We all live in the tension between trying to elevate ourselves versus elevating Christ and others. And this really comes from where our human history begins, right? Our human history begins in a story uh, re revealed to us in the book of Genesis where we were created as a human race in perfect relationship with God. We were created to enjoy Him perfectly and within the authority of our humanity under God's divinity, we were living in a freedom that then bled into our relationship between one another. And we saw this between Adam and Eve, where they lived for one another, uh, they were good for each other, they were mutually submitted to one another uh, in a structure that God had set up between man and woman, uh, and the whole human story was beautiful. The enemy came into that story and convinced Adam and Eve that they were not equal with God, therefore uh, there was a problem that they were living under. And if they became equal with God, they became the same as Him, then they would no longer have to live under His authority, and by definition, authority equates to inequality, because authority means someone's in charge lording over someone else, and therefore the person being lorded over does not have freedom and is not equal uh, to that situation. So what we bought into was that in order to experience equality, we would have to eliminate authority and we would have to eliminate distinction so that if we were the same as God and we were in our own authority, then we were free and then we were equal. And so we bought in and we ate of the fruit that was forbidden so that we would know good and evil and be what? The same as God. Well, we didn't turn out to be the same as God, did we? We turned out to absorb sin and sin created death. And so our lives moved from life, from freedom, from light to death to bondage to darkness. And we have lived in that dynamic ever since. Had it not been for the great love of God that came to rescue us from sin and death, from darkness and bondage, and uh, we would still be living in that dynamic fully. Uh, thankfully, we are only living in part in our experience on planet Earth because we know the great redemptive work of Jesus, the gospel, has rescued our souls so that we are no longer dead but alive in Christ. It has 
redeemed our future so that death does not have its way eternally, but we actually are reconciled to God, and it has restored our purpose so that we can once again live under God's authority and with one another in union, in unity, to image God and to display Him. That's what we were created to do, okay? So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in response to a letter he received from them asking some questions about how things work now that they are worshiping God as a body, as a, as a community in unity because some things were not going well. He also got word from Corinth that the letter wasn't fully accurate, that they were kind of a, a little less uh, uh, vulnerable than they ought to have been and things are much worse than the letter makes out. So Paul is responding to word he got from someone and a letter from Corinth, kind of writing to them and saying, we got to deal with some stuff. Because he's dealing in these areas, we know we've stepped into some fairly charged and controversial issues, haven't we? Because Paul needs to deal with them, because whenever the biblical community living under the kingdom of God collides with the world's community living under the culture, there is going to be some controversy and some difficulty because God does things very differently than the world does, very differently than the enemy does. We are stepping into a section of scripture right now that in our cultural context is very charged and very controversial. Because it deals with the reality of authority, and specifically, it deals with the reality of authority structures in gender distinctives. In other words, between men and women. And you're already nervous, aren't you? You're like, oh man, this is going to be, where, where is this going to go? What's because uh, we have lived in a cultural context for so long where the church and the culture has utilized authority and even utilized the scriptures we're going to deal with today to lord over a people group that as far as we can tell in all of history have been the most abused, the most held back, the most completely used people group on the planet, and that's woman. That is the reality. And so we're stepping into that today because Paul is dealing with that in the context of the first, the church in Corinth. And as we step into this, though I know it is controversial and charged, here is what I am certain of and hopeful for, that when we are done with these passages, when you and I gain clarity of what God is actually saying and not how they have been misused and grossly abused, but what he's actually meaning, that we as a community and you as women and us as men will find ourselves excited, set free, and ready to live in unity together in Imaging the beautiful character of God, because that's what he wants, and that's what these passages actually do. Okay, so let's jump into some context here, okay? Clap when I'm done, because it might not go well. We'll see. <laughs> All right, here we go, right? So here's the deal. Where are we in the context? Paul has written to the church in, in Corinth. The first uh, bunch of section in this book uh, has really been dealing with life issues. How do you live out the reality of following Jesus in everyday life, in your lives, with one another, with the larger community? How does all that work? He goes from chapter 1 to chapter 10, dealing with everyday life. In chapter 10, I mean, beginning of chapter 11, there is a focus that occurs with Paul in the letter. He moves from this everyday life stuff, here's what it means to follow Jesus, to a very particular context. And the context is the worship gathering. In other words, when you gather together, 
whether in small groups or in larger groups, that's irrelevant, when you gather together for the intent of worshiping God, uh, experiencing something like we're doing here, here are some instructions on things to do in those gatherings and how to do those things. So chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 deal with the use of our spiritual gifts, the reality of remembering Christ in communion, the way we handle wealth and poverty, the way we handle distinctives within our community, and how we together in unity worship God. So that's what these chapters are about. We have spent time dealing with communion because wealth and poverty were making a massive distinction there. The wealthy were getting drunk on the wine because they had so much of it and the poor weren't even welcome at the table. Paul goes, this is insane. You are designed to come together to share with one another. These distinctives should not separate you. They should unify you so that you can glorify God. In the gifting, people were using their gifts to elevate themselves, set themselves apart. I have better gifts than you, more powerful gifts than you. Paul goes, no, the gifts are to unify us so that we can display the character of God and together, not as any one individual, but as a body, we better display God than individually. So any one person with one or two gifts cannot display God nearly as well as a hundred people with a hundred gifts. And so that together we do it. So he's dealt with that. Now, this particular section, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, the central line that holds it all together is anything you do now as a Christ follower, you do out of love, not out of self-interest, and you do it for the sake of Christ, not for yourself. And you do it for the sake of others, not for yourself. That's the distinctive line that Paul comes back to. In fact, chapter 13 is all about that. Remember why we're doing this, right? So that's what's going on. You now have a context. We're going to jump to the beginning of 11 because I'm going to show you where Paul's journey begins in helping us understand how to do this thing together to the glory of God. Grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is on page 662 if you're using one of our Bibles or if you're using a smart device or your own Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Take a look. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, here's what it says. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What a beautiful way to start. Look, remember this is a brand new section in the whole letter. What a beautiful way to start. Let's focus in on the worship service. Remember, under this umbrella. Be imitators of Christ. So follow me as I follow Christ so that you might follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ so that you would imitate Christ. That's right. That's the premise. Always, every day, all the time. We exist for His glory to image Him. We are ambassadors of the Savior. We are not for ourselves anymore because He has rescued us. Now look what He says now. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Pay attention now because Paul does not commend the Corinthians often and he just commended them. So when he commends them, we ought to pause and go, wow, he said something good. What are they doing that is good? Because there's so little of it and so when there is, we should, we should pay attention. Now, what he's really doing here is he's setting up chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, saying to them, I, I'm, I'm at least happy 
that you're still gathering together and you're still doing the things I told you to do in the gathering. So they're apparently still doing communion, they're still using the gifts, and they're still gathering in the way that Paul instructed them to. So he's happy about that. Now what he's going to do is go, but the way you're handling all the stuff that you're doing is a mess. you got to get it right. So he's saying, I'm glad you're still doing it. I really am. But we got to talk about how it's playing out because it's not playing out well. Now, specifically, there is an additional piece to this commendation that you wouldn't just pick up if you just read the passage. But if you understood the historical context into which this is being written, if you did your research and you looked at the historians of that time and what they wrote about, if you understood how the context of this passage plays in from one verse to the next, then you would know that there is an undernote to this commendation that is powerful that sets us up for the next section of this passage. You see, the fact that they were doing communion and using the gifts was, was commendable, but it was kind of obvious, right? Of course you would be doing that when you gather. I mean, I commend you that you're still doing it. But there was a major shift in the way the gathering was taking place that Paul had instructed them, having been instructed by the Spirit of God in their gathering, and that was this. That in the gathering space of the churches that were formed uh, under Christ, the men and the woman were gathering together. And you go, what? That doesn't sound so woo. Well, it was certainly a big deal back then because in the cultural context, both in the pagan cultures as well as the Jewish culture, that was not the norm. In fact, it didn't happen. In the pagan culture, it was at its worst. The woman in the pagan cultures of Corinth and in fact all of Macedonia and Rome were in fact the most abused and used people group for the active worship. In other words, they were not participants in the worship side by side with the men. They were the objects used in the worship for the men to worship. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was not pretty. And the woman didn't enter into the temples and participate with the men in active worship. They had other ways they worshiped. And if they were in those temples, they were there to be abused. And so the cultural context was men worship this way, women worship this way. It's always separate. And if it is together, it is not to be together and unified. It is to be used and abused. That was the cultural context of the secular environment. The Jewish environment, the men and women came into the gathering space and they separated out so that the men worshipped and the women worshipped separately in an authority structure that was set up. And so the woman, if you came from a Jewish background, were not used to being in the service, in the gathering with the men, nor in a secular environment where they're used to it. Paul says, as we know because he's written it many times, under Christ... There is no distinction now between the equality of men and women. We are one under Christ, slave and free. We are one under Christ, man and woman. We are one under Christ, Greek and Jew. And so those distinctions that were used by our humanity to separate us and to create competitiveness and authority structures that would use and abuse people were eliminated under Christ. And so under Christ, you came together freely in unity and you worshiped together. And the church in Corinth were doing that. They were doing it together. But since the woman had not been in a worship service most of their lives and the men were used to doing it a certain way in the worship service, you can imagine there's a bit of a learning curve, right? 
So the women were acting all weird, the men were acting all weird, and it was not going well. So Paul begins, before he gets into communion, before he gets into gifting, before he gets into those things, he begins right off the bat with what was probably the first question in the letter he received. We're doing it like you said. We're together, the men and the women. It's getting weird. Can you help us? Here's what the women are doing. Here's what the men are doing. Should we do that? Is that what you meant? We don't know. It, it's, it's feeling wrong. Uh, we're, we're embarrassed regularly. We're all feeling a little off, and we leave church hating each other. I can imagine that was probably in the letter, okay? Because when you hear what was going on, you'll see how that was probably what was playing out. Take a look, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, just said, I commend you. Now look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there, right off the bat, and this is why the historians believe that his commendation here was about the uh, bringing together of men and women in the worship service, which in that culture was revolutionary and a sign of equality beyond anything that had ever been seen before. Because Christ is for who? All of us. He is equally for men and women, and he has designed us in equality, though distinctive, for purpose. And we'll get to that in a second. So we read that sentence, right? And this is where the controversy begins, doesn't it? Because you didn't really hear the part about Christ being over men or the part about God being over Christ. You just heard the sentence about wives being under their husbands, right? I mean, c- come on, guys. It's, you're like, yeah, sure, 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 Christ is over men. I got it. And sure, 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 Jesus is under the Father. I got it. But it said wives are under husbands. It's inappropriate. It creates massive inequality, and I don't like it. I'm like, okay, I got it. That's exactly why Paul is writing this to give us a clarity about something we have misunderstood uh, in our humanity that God is going to show us is in fact extraordinarily beautiful. Now look what he says. Every man who prays or prophesies, verse four, with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful, it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off, or to cut off her hair, or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, what a weird passage. Okay, I mean, we skip these things, because they're like, what? Here's the deal. It's not weird at all. It's not weird at all. You see, here's what was happening. Let me tell you how it was playing out. The woman, rightly so, had lived under abusive authority for a long time, as many women do. Even in our culture, if you go get a job, you have the same qualifications, the same resume, the same deal. You both step into the same position. It is not uncommon in our culture for the the company to pay the woman less than the man. That's ridiculous. That's insane. It is not uncommon for a woman to have a harder time becoming a CEO than a man. That is ridiculous and insane. You see, women have lived under a certain reality in the culture where they are seen as less because they're emotional or as, as though being emotional is a bad thing, right? Or they're not as logical because our culture has elevated those things. And because of that, when Paul said to the woman in the church, I've got fantastic news for you, you no longer have to live in this inequality 
they, as I would expect, reacted to try to demonstrate and display their equality in the church. So let me explain what was happening. In that culture, when you wore a head covering, the head covering was instituted to display two important things. One, it was a way of making you someone that was now belonging to another. I wear a wedding ring. This is the same thing as a woman would have worn over her head or a man might have grown a beard, right? So uh, here's the deal. This said, I belong to another. I don't belong to you. And therefore, here it is, I am no longer available for things that are inappropriate, okay? I, I said it that way for the sake of our kids, okay? I'm no longer available. I now belong. That was what a head covering did in that culture, okay? It also... Uh, spoke to the idea that since I belong to someone, I'm now uh, uh, submitted to the relationship that I have with them, and I am functioning in authority with somebody else. So it, it, it spoke to authority, it spoke to availability and belonging, and here's the other cool part, right? Not only did it speak to those things, but it was also a distinctive way to say, I am a woman, that's why I wear a head covering, versus a man. If a man put a head covering on, it got weird, okay? So every culture throughout history have had ways in which they have displayed the distinctiveness between the genders, okay? I'll give you a silly example, okay? Most of the women that are in our culture, they love getting pedicures and manicures, getting their nails painted in bright red colors, putting nice lipstick on, putting makeup on, doing their hair a particular way, right? It'd be a little odd, just saying it'd be a little odd um, if suddenly all the men started doing the same thing, okay? We'd all go, I, I, I don't know how I feel about that, right? Because in our cultural context, the issues of makeup and, and nail polish and stuff is not the issue. A hundred years from now, that may be irrelevant. It is how our culture tangibly displays distinctives between the genders, okay? Now, watch this. The women were coming into church. Out there in the world, they were under the authority of the person they belonged to, they were distinctive as a woman, which in their case had been an abusive reality for a long time, or at least a reality of being under the lordship of others. But in Christ, they were free. So as they walked into church, essentially, here's what they done. They took their wedding ring off and put it in a little box on the way into church to say this. Not to say I don't belong to my husband, but to say, under Christ... I do not belong to him, and I'm not under his authority. Clink, I'm under Christ's authority. Does that sound right? Well, yeah, it does, but you're also like, well, hold on. It sounds right, but I think it's wrong, right? You're expressing your freedom in Christ, but at the same time, something, something weird is happening. So Paul was saying, when you take your head covering off in church, because that's the way you display that you belong to your husband, that's the way you display that you're not available, and that's the way that you display the realities of your distinctiveness. When you remove that, you're saying like this, I want to be like the men. I don't want to be different from them. I don't want to be under their authority. That is my husband's. And frankly, I, I need to get rid of this to express my freedom. And here's what he said. It's not expressing freedom. It's actually creating shame. You're saying, eh, I'm available, P.S. So now all the women are available to all the men. And you'll, now, of course, we know that wasn't what they were trying to do. But Paul's going, do you understand the implications to this? It creates a mess in the worship service. Not to mention, you're saying, you're saying, 
that to be equal, to express equality, I must eliminate authority and I must eliminate distinctiveness. That's what our culture says. When we eliminate distinctiveness and authority, we create equality. And God says, no, no, that's not how it works at all. That's just a misunderstanding of distinctiveness and authority. Let me explain. Look, Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on. Take a look at this. He says this. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should shave it because then that's equal to the shame that she's bringing upon herself in the worship service. Look at this next verse, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Oh, we're in trouble again. <laughs> yep. You're like, now you're mad again. And I don't totally blame you because you're like, oh, hold on. This is ridiculous. If we're equal, how can you say, he's made for God, but I'm just made for him? That's not what Paul's saying at all, and I'll explain in a second. You'll see what comes next. Here's what Paul is saying. Guys, when God, in Genesis, set up the picture of humanity, he didn't set it up for fairness, although it is fair. He didn't set it up for self-elevation, although we try to do that. He didn't set it up for self-glorification, he didn't set it up so we could compete and fight to become better than the other in our distinctiveness and in our authority. See, authority and distinctiveness in its corrupt form is always used competitively to elevate self above the other. And he's like, that's not how it started. This beautiful picture between a husband and wife, a man and a woman, was set up for what purpose? To image God. That's it. To image God. And how was it to image God? It was to image the relationship between God and mankind to protect mankind from thinking that authority, if eliminated, would create equality. It was actually distinctly created to say, no, authority in a biblical natural fashion is a way in which the person who is good, God, protects the person who is weaker than him. Not weaker physically necessarily or mentally, just the person not over authority. It is a mutual reality. So he says this to them. Guys, listen. When you all try to act like the ladies, ladies, when you all try to act like the guys by trying to be the same, you eliminate distinctiveness and therefore eliminate the ability to image God the, the proper way. It's as though you want to do it alone. So here's kind of what he's saying there. Ladies, if you come to church, remove your makeup, put on a suit and tie, uh, uh, make sure that you, that you leave your wedding ring at the door, and, and guys, if you put makeup on and, and, and you get all dressed up, it would be, it would be equally as weird, okay? Could, why, why would we be doing that? To eliminate what? Distinctiveness. But he's like, no, 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 no. Distinctiveness matters to the gospel. And within the distinctiveness, there is a structure of authority that matters to the gospel. We'll find out in a minute why. Take a look what he says now. So he's just said, woman, you belong to man. Man, you belong to God. Sounds a little, ah, right? But I love what he does next because this is Paul. He's like, guys, if you suddenly just felt your chests rise a bit, that's right. You listen, woman. I belong to God. You belong to me. Watch what Paul just does. Look at this. This is so beautiful. Paul knows exactly how we think in our corruptibility. Look at this. Look at what he says. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women are not independent of man, 
nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman. And all things are from God. Here's what he's saying, literally as though he's preaching. He's going, ladies, the authority structure put into place, the distinctive reality of relationship was not about you or about guys. It wasn't about equality. It was about imaging God. That's why God made man. Then he extracted woman from man, making her for man, and making man, wait for it, for her. So, so, and, and as soon as the guys go, that's right, he goes, nevertheless, boys, you're born from the woman. You don't even live without her. God created it so that all of the people don't come from the men, right? They come from the woman. Why do you think God did that? Because God is always maintaining a beautiful balance between equality and distinctiveness and authority. They can coexist in the same space beautifully when they're understood biblically. And they're not utilized competitively to try to elevate self. And that's what the people in Corinth were doing. And so he's like, listen, this matters. Now look what he's going to do. He just said, nevertheless, men are born for women, so this is not about equality. It is about a created order for the sake of imaging God. And all things are from God, he says. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? This is not proper. Why? Not because her head is uncovered. That was a cultural distinctive, tangible way of displaying distinctiveness and displaying authority. What Paul's saying is, is it appropriate for anyone and a woman in this case, because they were the ones thought this was the right way to do it, to come to God in prayer, but first eliminating all structures of authority and distinctiveness? No. No, live within the authority and distinctiveness and then come to God in prayer as a submissive act of trust to God. Take a look. Look at this. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Now again, Paul is using a localized expression. He's saying this. In the very natural order of things, we're different. I mean, we're different. Things grow differently. Things look different. Biologically, we're different. Physiologically, we're different. So who are we then to say that God has the right to create us biologically different, physiologically different, but he is not allowed to give us different roles? That would be insane. Why would he create us different if his intent was not to allow us in unity to express a more full picture of who he is, right? Because he has said the reality of authority was set up in the triunity of God even though there's no necessity for it. Listen to that again. The reality of authority was set up in the triunity of God even though there's no necessity for it. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal in every way, without exception in all things, and yet the Son submits to the Father. Why? Because authority is a safety net for our humanity when we start thinking crazy back into the garden. We'll get to that in a second. Take a look what he says now. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair and if a woman... Uh, 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 that a woman's hair is for her. Then it says this, uh, verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious. Now you may not know what the word contentious means. You go, of, co of course I do. That's six of you. 
the rest of us don't know, okay? So contentious means to be argumentative or to create strife. In other words, it is a natural process of a person arguing for the sake of arguing or creating unnecessary discussion about things that have no place. He says, if you are prone to be contentious with one another, look at this, look at this, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. What is Paul speaking of there? He's going to get back to this and explain it a little better in chapter 14. You remember last week, when, if you were here, we were doing prophecy in tongues. Then we got to verse 34 and 35 about women being silent in church and keeping their head coverings on and, and going home and talking only to their husbands. And, and I went, let's skip that. And you all went, what? And I said, well, come back to it. Don't worry. Well, welcome back. Here we are. Okay? So. It seems and has been grossly misused in the past by churches to establish ungodly authority. It has been used in the past to say women have no place in the church to affect leadership, to speak out uh, in the beauty, uh, beauty of clarifying truth to one another. They should be silent, uh, stay still and go home and talk only to their husband because their husband is the only one that has the right to speak to them and they should respect him that way. That is not the intent of this verse at all. Why? Because Paul in this chapter 11 just said, when a woman prophesies, have her keep her head covering on. Odd, isn't it? He didn't say, woman, why are you prophesying? You should be silent. No, he said, no, no, no. When a woman's prophesying, totally appropriate, just make sure she is not doing it as a way to, dis- to, 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 to display her freedom in Christ as a sameness with everyone else and under no authority that God has set up in the home and the church. By all means, clarify, bring truth, lead, woman. By all means, clarify, bring truth, lead, men. But when you're doing it as man or woman, do it within the distinctiveness God has set up and under the authority in which he has placed so that we maintain what we were created for, which is to bear the image of God to the world. And so he says this. In chapter 14, he's dealing with prophecy in tongues specifically, and listen to how it goes. Listen to what he says here. Chapter 14, going to verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, um, but of peace. So what is the context here? How to test prophecy in the community, right? It is right after this that he throws this in. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be, be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, we already know Paul doesn't mean to speak as the men do in appropriate fashions. Here's what the women were doing. As an active display of their freedom... When they had a question, especially when their husband was doing the clarifying of truth, they would go, uh, excuse me, what, what, are you, what are you saying about that? Well, how, what do you mean by that? I don't understand that. Or a husband might uh, unintentionally exaggerate a story a little bit about his six-year-old son. And his wife might go, that's not how it went down. Sorry, people. He's not nearly as perfect as you all think he is. He's not getting this right. See, 
my wonderful wife comes to one of our gatherings. And when we drive home, or when we get home, she will, in her extraordinary way, often encourage me and then clarify some things. I wasn't quite sure what you meant by that. Then I'll explain it to her, and then she'll say, that's not how it came across. Then she'll go, if it came across the way I heard it to 10 other people, that's going to be detrimental to those 10 people. Then I go, you're right, I should have thought about saying that better. Or she says, you know that story you told about Cole, you know it didn't exactly go down that way. To which I say, I was minimizing some details that were irrelevant, and I was maximizing some details that were relevant. To which she would say, that is not accurate, and it is a lie. To which I would say, we define lie differently. (laughs) Now, imagine if all of that was going on right here. I get to the story... And Brooke goes, excuse me, I'm sorry people, he's exaggerating again, I just want to get that right. Or, excuse me, I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the way he said that, so I want him to clarify it to you all, because clearly I know better what clarities need to come than he does on the stage, because the Spirit of God may be speaking through him, but the Spirit of God's telling me to correct him. You understand what I'm saying? Paul might write to our church and to Brooke and say, do it at home. When you're, when you're correcting somebody that is in the process of clarifying truth or uh, speaking in the prophetic, whether it's bringing the word of God like we spoke, spoke last week, d- don't, don't start doing it in church. Plus, here's the deal. You know this. When you're close to someone, you know all their stuff, right? And so they're never quite as nice to you as they are to everybody else in terms of your view of them, right? And so the ladies were having a skewed view of their husbands. In church, their husbands were bringing clarity, and the ladies were like, ah, you shouldn't listen to him on that. He doesn't do that at home. He might be telling you that, but he hadn't washed a dish in a week. (laughs) To which the, the husband was embarrassed, the wife brought shame upon herself and upon the family, and everybody was uncomfortable. Paul's writing to the ladies saying, ladies, I'm so glad you're in the gathering with the men now, but you may not have understood that displaying your freedom in this way is inappropriate, weird, makes it uncomfortable and brings shame upon you and your husband. So go home and talk there about the dishes. You know, it's great you told the church to do the dishes, the husbands do the dishes for their wives, but you don't do it for me. You know, honey, you're right. I'm so sorry I should. You see what I'm saying? So what Paul is doing here is he's not trying to create inequality. He's trying to remind both the men and the woman that distinctiveness and authority was set up by God not to eliminate equality, but to enhance it. Because when somebody submits to somebody under authority to them, not because they are forced, but as an active act of love and respect, it is one of the most beautiful declarations of power on this planet. Now, when someone is submitted to someone because they are lorded over and abused, it is one of the most heinous and horrible versions. It is called slavery, and we fight against it. But what Christ has done is this. I have equalized the playing field. Men and women, you are equal now, but I'm not going to remove authority structures. I'm just going to ask you, men and women, to mutually submit to one another in the distinctive roles to which I have created you so that you can image me to the world, which means if you are in authority, then you serve those over whom you have authority. And if you are under authority, then you respect those under whom you are uh, placed. 
and respect and love is born both in the home and the church. So God set up authority structures within the church. Authority structures of elders and deacons and the functioning of how they play. And they are, yes, distinctive in their gender at times. Not for the sake of inequality, but for the sake of painting a picture of God. For who is our example of living in equality, yet as a voluntary act of power, submitting to authority? Oh wait, it's coming to me. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is in every single way perfectly equal to the Father and the Spirit. And yet in John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says, I will not speak a word without the Father telling me. He never spoke a word on this planet without the Father telling him. What a submission. When in the garden, and he wanted to walk out of the redemptive act of dying on the cross, what did he say? Father, may this cup pass, and if not, your will be done. He could have walked out of that garden like that. He's equal in every way in the triunity of God, but yet he submitted his life to the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Christ, though having equality with God, did not see equality as something to be grasped, but instead submitted himself as a servant, even a servant unto death. In the, in the Last Supper, it was Jesus who stood with his disciples over whom he had every authority. And what did he do? He tied a towel around his waist, bent down on his knees and washed their feet and said, this is what I want you to do for each other. Are you in authority over someone? By role, not by power and uh, sense of greatness? Then you are to serve them with your whole heart even unto death. Are you under someone's authority, under a husband, under the elders of the church, under somebody's authority, even as employee, employer? Then submit with respect to your authorities as an active, powerful act of trusting God, not trusting them. Half the time you can't trust your authorities because they're corruptible human beings. Half the time they won't treat you appropriately, but you submit to them as an act of trust of God unless they are abusing you. In which case, you don't submit to them, you go find help. You say, I don't want to usurp authority. I don't want to uh, unhealthily grab authority. I just want to get help from other authority to help me with this authority. That's an appropriate way. It's, we are told in church, actually, if you're being hurt, then go to the authority structures that have been placed and ask them for help. Go to God and say, God, uh, this person in their authority is abusing it and therefore making it difficult for me. Would you mind either removing them from authority or submitting them to you? Because that's what he said, right? Men, husbands, you're submitted to who? Christ. That's a lot bigger of a thing than being submitted to another human being. And ladies, you are submitted also to Christ and to your husbands. Why? Because they are better than you know. Because that's the distinctiveness into which God has invited us to live. Look, ladies, I know in the cultural context in which you live, and even in the church context in which you've probably grown up, there have been multiple misuses of authority over you. Probably even in your homes, 
your husbands at times have misused their authority as an active way by which to maintain power instead of an active way by which they could serve. I get it. And unfortunately, in our context, if you happen to be the one under authority, it feels in your humanity, doesn't it? Like you are therefore the one most vulnerable because somebody else is over you. First of all, just a reminder, we're all vulnerable because we're all under God or enslaved to sin, one or the other. But second of all, here's the deal. I am sorry that you have been held back at times from appropriate gifting, leadership, expression, both outside and inside the church because of misuse of verses like this and an ungodly manner by which men have not served but men have lorded. I am sorry. But the solution is not to usurp authority, ignore authority, or remove distinctiveness. The real biblical solution is to go to the one under whom we are all and ask him to bring beauty and health to those who are misunderstanding authority and then to make sure that you have multiple authorities into whom you can ask for help when one is inappropriately handling you. But in our distinctiveness and in the authority structures that God has set up, that is where our greatest power lies. Why? Because our distinctiveness and our authority was never meant to be used competitively in life to elevate ourselves above others. It was actually meant to be used to unify us because I don't have enough to image God without you, and you don't have enough to image God without me, and when we are together, we bring a better picture of God to the world than when we are alone. It was meant to make us go, I am limited in my gender. I am limited in my gifting. I am limited in my personality. I am limited in my knowledge. I am limited in what I've been given. But we are not. We are unlimited because God has given us together gifts, knowledge, wisdom, gender, descriptives, and distinctives by which together we image God and in the right authority structures, those are a beautiful submission to God. And here's what happens. Listen to this very carefully now. It is in this space of submitting to authority when you don't have to, but because you get to, that we most defy the incident in the garden. We most defy the very lie by which the enemy sunk us in the first place by voluntarily submitting to the right authority structures and as authorities by in godliness serving and loving those over whom we have authority. Instead of using our gifts and our distinctives and our gender to try to lord or elevate, we use them in unity to display beautifully. So the responsibility is with all of us, men and women alike, to remain distinctive to live under the authorities or in the authorities for the sake of Christ, acting as a great good to one another so that Jesus would be glorified and the gospel would be made beautiful. This is what Paul was trying to tell the church in Corinth. This is what he's trying to tell us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this extraordinary and wondrous unpack of the beauty of distinctiveness and authority within the equality that you have created under Christ. May we never use our distinctiveness or our authority 
as a competitive life act to elevate ourselves, but may we instead use it to unify with one another and bring you glory. And may we never think that by usurping or ignoring distinctiveness between gender or authority set up in the home and the church that somehow we will create greater freedom and equality. Because God, Adam and Eve tried that in the garden and it didn't go well. And we have been paying the price ever since but for your grace and mercy. So help us to be a church of men that in the spaces that we are called into leadership, whether in a home or in the church, that we would lead as servants, laying ourselves down for those over whom you have given us the role of authority. And help us as women in our church to respect those in authority over us and to see you as the one who is over us all. That we would know together, though you created us distinctively, woman from man, woman for man, man for woman, you also created us to be born from one another so that there is no possibility for anything but an equal understanding, an equality with one another. And yet, we choose voluntarily to live within the authorities and distinctiveness that you have created for your sake, for your glory, even if it costs us ours. We love you, Jesus.